0: Thank you for being here. I acknowledge that the city of Hamilton where I record this podcast is situated upon the traditional First Nations territories of the Erie, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, Mississaugas, and the Chonodon of the so-called neutral tribes. Hamilton is also directly adjacent to the Haldeman Treaty Territory. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which extends between Montreal and Fort Erie, It was an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe. That wampum uses the symbolism of a dish to represent the territory, and one spoon to represent that the people are to share the resources of the land and only take what they need. Hamilton is home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and this land acknowledgement is a small gesture to recognize the rich history of this land, and so that I can better understand my role as a settler, as well as a neighbor, partner, and caretaker. I stand in solidarity with all those that fight for justice on behalf of the murdered and missing Indigenous women, girls, LGBTQ+, and two-spirited people. I grieve the generational trauma created by the residential school system and the 60s scoop. I grieve the children and childhoods lost through ignorance and racism. Miigwech. Thank you. Welcome to the arena where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. Terry Tomoff is one of those people who leaves a lasting impact on you. The story of her family, and in particular, her son Ryan's almost 20 year battle with cancer is simply remarkable. She has learned to grow from her experiences and now through her book, The Focused Fight and Public Speaking, she helps others deal with one of the worst moments of their lives, their child's cancer diagnosis. Thank you for listening. This is episode 40. And this is your sewing room as well. I can see the, t- the typical
1: quilter, stacks of
0: <laughs> material. Yeah, Those bags right you.
1: there, that's uh, for future quilt that I have to make. My sewing section is on this side of the dining room table. This is my writing side. I'm on the writing side right now. My iron (laughs) is right there. (laughs) I do have quilts thrown around. Yes. How many have you made now? Do you know? Well, for the t-shirt quilt business, a couple hundred, but probably overall, I'm just probably shy of a thousand quilts over 35 years, say, maybe a little shy of that. Yeah. Baby quilts and quilts for marriages and so forth. And now for the charity quilts, we do. We've donated over two thousand. Now, I've, of course, that was my guild that did all that. But we donated that. I because I, I have a long arm. I have a big long arm quilting machine, and it allows me to quilt quite a bit of my quilts. It used to be the hand quilting was the longest part of quilting oh, yeah. quilt. Now it's the quickest part. So you're not spending months on it hand quilting. So I can get a right. quilt done in an afternoon. Or day. Wow. Yeah. I actually took a note here. I'm part of the gig economy, the writer, the quilter <laughs> and the referee. That's, that's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good for you. Well, you know yeah. what? It's, it's the way of the world right now. Exactly.
1: So. I'm, I'm right in the thick of it. So that's a good thing. And I love everything I do. So it's not like I have jobs really. Cause I love all three. Beautiful. Yeah. Nice. That's a good thing.
0: I, I, Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you of the many people that I've spoken to living courageously. Oh my gosh. Just
1: having read your book, The Focused Fight. I want to thank you for allowing me to share my story of hope and inspiration, resilience, and the power of connection and community and post-traumatic growth. I'm
0: thrilled to be here. Well, you are a woman (laughs) of just unbelievable resilience. Let me share this little introduction I have for you, and then we'll dive into the rest of the story. Terry Tomoff, you're a mother, daughter, sister, wife, quilter, athlete, USSF soccer referee, blogger, and author. It sounds idyllic. You're also the mother of a son who went through five cancers, three times with leukemia and two times with adult tongue cancer. When your son Ryan was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, standard risk with central nervous system involvement at age two, you dug in. You drew from your deep faith, family and friends and larger community for what was a focused fight for his young life. After three years of treatment, Ryan was in remission, but not for long. Eight months later, it returned. Once again, your family was plunged into the world of pediatric oncology for another two years. Again, he was declared in remission, this time for 17 months. The third cancer diagnosis meant Ryan would have to achieve remission before a bone marrow transplant would be possible. This was his best hope for survival. The doctors had hit Ryan with everything they had. Each time he endured unimaginable pain. As a parent, All you could do was pray and hope and believe Ryan would pull through. An anonymous donor was your best hope, as no one in the family was a match. Fortunately, there was a matched, unrelated donor. Then they backed out at the last minute. But there was a second donor. They agreed to go through with the procedure. Fortunately, Ryan's body accepted the donation. Life began to return to normal. But as his mother, now hyper-aware of any changes in Ryan's behavior, you noticed his speech was different one day. He said it was a canker sore, but it didn't go away. Back to the doctor. A malignant squamous cell sarcoma was found on his tongue. After a successful operation, surely this was the end of his cancer journey. Unfortunately, during a follow-up check, another lesion was found and another surgery. This time, it was caught early, and the lymph nodes and tongue cells removed came back negative for cancer. Ryan was finally cancer-free at 21. Your book outlines each stage of Ryan's diagnosis, treatment, and recovery in great detail, and it sounds like a depressing read, and while it's heartbreaking at times, I didn't imagine feeling so inspired by your stories. (laughs) Of course, your husband... Bill and daughter Olivia were a huge part of this story. Olivia was four when her baby brother was diagnosed. She also went through the roller coaster of his illnesses, recoveries, and relapses. You and your husband took turns living at the hospital, being at Ryan's side for, no kidding, years of his life. There is a remarkable community of people from volunteers and organizations that supported all of you through this, not to mention the countless specialists, nurses, and doctors. And then in 2021, just as you were publishing this book called The Focused Fight, you had your own cancer diagnosis. Yes. Welcome to the
1: arena, Terry. (laughs) It sure is. It sure is an arena. Yes.
0: You know, if I hadn't read it in a published book, I would never believe that this was even possible. There's no way that you could put this in a film, come (laughs) up with this story. And I just mentioned at the end there that you had your own cancer diagnosis. So how are you doing and how did that all turn out?
1: Great. I was able to get to the doctor. As we know, we've advocated for so many years. So something was amiss. I noticed it last year, but I thought it was really nothing. It was something was going to go away. I'm a healthy gal. I eat well, athletic, all the things that you would think that would save me from anything like that. And sure enough, I had uterine cancer. But it was a stage 1A surgery, was able to get everything, and I had a radical hysterectomy. And, and I'm still, I think, recovering a little bit. I don't like to say that. I feel like I'm 100%, but I think I still am recovering, to be honest with you. I have to be honest with myself. It's just, it, and other people that I've known, it, it takes about a year, not only for that abdomen area, and especially at the rate I run my life. I'm always in that red zone. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> And so for me to take those breathers and not race from one thing to the next, which I I love to do, I've had to step back. And Bill, my husband, has sat on me for those first few months to make sure that was the case. So I could enjoy today and going on a trip and all that. But I could not believe it. The day before that I was going to publish is, or I, I should say that, no, the diagnosis, I had to wait for surgery and everything else. And I, I had to wait a little bit before I pushed that button before, <laughs> because we was still in the last production of that book. Thankfully, my formatter was a, a very good friend of mine and she was able to squeeze that in there. So we're all good. Wow. I, I laugh that I, I tell people when they read the book or people who have known us for years and just look at us and shake their head like you are, Linda, to me. And I'm like, well, we're still standing. And how are we standing? Well... A lot of fairy dust, I think, sprinkled and magic wand over our heads sometimes, but humor was a big part of it. And I think learning empathy and people being empathetic to us, not sympathetic, not giving us pity, but just being empathetic to us. I think that really was a, a number one thing for us, too, along with the doctors and nurses. Believe me, they want the same outcomes as the parents do. Mm-hmm. So when we're all in it together as a team, team approach, I think that's really catapulted us above and beyond considering what Brian and our family had to deal with. It was crazy. Social worker told us, don't buy theater tickets. And I laughed initially when she told us that. But then as we got into it, it's like, wow, we could never plan anything. It was just a whole. That's why I say in the book that our tradition is no tradition. We couldn't even do traditions. That became our tradition. No traditions or new ones on the fly. And you go through that much. Every day is a celebration, really. You live each day to the fullest. You lay your head down at night, thank your superpower, your whoever it is, for another day, for another successful day. Even if you had a headache all day, you're still here, you still can do something. Maybe you ate that day. That's a blessing, right? That's
0: how I look at it. And it was moment to moment, hour to hour that you were giving that blessing.
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh. I said it when, I, when that second hand on the clock would only move 10 seconds or 15 seconds. Oh, man, I was in for a long day. <laughs> But that gave me that day to fight. So then I flipped it around and I said, well, that was 10 seconds. I'm glad I have those 10 or 15 seconds. Okay, let's just string a couple minutes together. Okay, let's string a couple half hours together. By the end of the day, 9, 10 o'clock, my son's going to bed. Okay, we managed. We got through it. So seconds turn into minutes, turn into half hours and hours to months, years, and here we are today. And how's, how's Ryan doing now? He's doing well. Thank you for asking. He's actually at work today. He works about five hours a day, uh, a little less than 20 hours a week. And I was going to talk a little bit about some things that didn't get in the book. And healthcare is a huge component of a lot of things, of course. He was under mm. my husband's insurance all those years. But when he turns 26, actually 25 and a half, you start worrying about things like that. Mm. And can he hold a full time job? I think he can. It might just be really take the wind out of them. So we actually worked with a couple of people in the legal world and they gave us a lot of suggestions and we decided to to help Ryan establish a Medicaid account and get him under Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So he could only work so many hours and he can only make so much per year, but his Medicaid is priceless. He has many friends that he knows they're doing well today. And actually, one of his friends just had a second baby. So she's wow. had two children, two miracles. She went through one bout of cancer and we're happy for her and a lot of other kids, thankfully. They are able to go on and they were able to have maybe the college education, maybe going into further master's degrees and all that. Ryan could not do that. He, mm-hmm. he realized he couldn't do that. And I think I talk a little bit about that that it was just too hard for him. It got to to be too hard. But he did pass 30-something hours worth of college credit, so I'm very happy about that. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. So take me back to your childhood. What was dinner conversation like in your household?
1: Well, I'm the oldest of three siblings, so three daughters, and I was the oldest by eight, nine years. So my second one, she's eight or nine years, and the other one's like seven years and nine years, say. Hmm. so I was so much older. When I got married at 25, they were young teenagers, middle teenager years, a little bit different there. I always wanted a sibling. My mother had trouble getting pregnant. She thinks she miscarried a lot of boys, and then she finally got pregnant with my sister. My dad was a big, huge-time bowler, so he was many nights of the week he wasn't at the dinner table, so it was just the girls. Plus, with all my athletics and Girl Scouts and my sisters coming up behind me, it was pandemonium, but my mother always had a meal at the table. Meat, potatoes, a vegetable, I will say. But the talk, I grew up in a very blue-collar industrial area of the city of Cleveland. So I just think the topics of the day or maybe your school day, but nothing outstanding. Mm-hmm. My mother was a reader. She did get all of us girls into to the library and start reading. So I was a huge reader. And I think I read every mystery novel in our little library (laughs) near where I grew up and loved that tremendously. And your
0: athletics, which is a big part still of your life, you were um, a track
1: athlete, is that right? Yes, track and cross country. I was a sprinter at the younger age groups, of course, and then as you get older, and in high school, I ran middle distances and then got to college, still made middle distances, but ran cross country. And then after graduating, I started doing half marathons and marathons. I've done a few triathlons, but not Ironmans, just sprint tech triathlons and so forth. So I've even tried that with ocean swims. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> and you still
0: managed to get out for the odd run, even through all of this this chaos.
1: Yes. I, I've been more walking. It depends on the day. Run, walk, and walk, walk. Well, pretty much every last few summers, I've been swimming a lot. I try to swim about a mile a day if I can when I'm home. Right. So that's very good. And that's it's easy on the body. It's easy mm-hmm. on that, that gut area that I'm still healing from versus a pounding on the running. But once right. I start refereeing soccer in the next few weeks, that's going to change because I'll be out there. And that'll be very good though.
0: Counting down the days.
1: Yeah. <laughs> It's good mentally because I don't think anything except what I'm doing on that, on that soccer pitch. So, yeah.
0: There are so many directions in which we could go from your quilting to the reffing and, and everything you experienced through Ryan's illness. What event in your life had the most profound impact on you?
1: (sighs) Oh boy. That's difficult. I would say actually getting married to my husband. I have to say that because we, yeah, that was a profound day because we didn't know it at the time. But I think our marriage survived all this. It was another topic I thought about mentioning here. How did your marriage survive? Well, Mm -hmm. the team approach and the fact that we prop each other up all the way through. We've been married 34 years, been together 36. And so every angle of everything we wanted to do, either with each other or individually, and I think that individually- part is really important here because he supported me individually what I wanted to do and accomplish. And I did the same for him. For him, it was keeping, uh, you know, food on the table and insurance and a few bucks in the bank. That was his job. My role was, of course, uh, in the beginning, you know, just getting established our marriage and then children. And then, of course, Ryan's situation. But I think that was a hugely profound Thing when I get married, and like I said, you don't know it; it's a crapshoot when you first walk down that aisle and say your I do's, because you know the divorce rate is like all around the world pretty much the same, and yet we've been able to survive and thrive through it all, and especially through the worst parts of anyone's life. Five times cancer fight with our son, we would just look at each other; we didn't have to talk. There were times we never had to say a word. We knew exactly how we felt, and we talked it all out. Tears were almost not there anymore towards the latter years because we've cried it all out. And I think that's a, that's a huge piece of my life. And he supports all my crazy shenanigans when I do and quilt retreats and going to soccer games and supporting my daughter Olivia through her games and just traveling around. He knows travel is very important to me. So he might not go on a trip, but he says, he gives me his blessing, go do your thing. That to me is pro- still profound and I'll take it.
0: You took on a nursing role in some respects through Ryan's treatments and maintaining these various lines that he had in his body to continue giving him the meds that he needed throughout the day. I mean, the way that you've written your book, (laughs) I, I suspect this should be required reading for any residents who want to go into pediatric oncology just to really understand the inside of a family going through
1: this experience. Right. They need to know that it's not just a child that they're treating, but it's a family or a loved one or a grandparent or a guardian. And that's very important for them. And that's why I did chats from the other side of the bed, which is in the book about Mm -hmm. really knowing what it is to be like a With parent. I know they work 100 hours a week, but I'm there 24-7, 365 without a break, right? Mm -hmm. Or rarely get home sometimes. So yeah, that was uh, really a challenging, but a really poignant moment in my life when Brian's main doctor, Aziza Shad, when I got very upset during something that happened on the floor, probably a new resident, uh, an intern, and I don't remember what it was, but I said, I am not going to get upset and get all bent out of shape about it, but can I have a way to talk to some of these residents and even some nurses, some new nurses or whatever, any newbies on the floor. Can I talk to them? She got me that physician's lounge so fast. There was standing room only. She brought people from the PICU, anywhere, anybody else in the hospital that needed that kind of a talking to. I did it many times over, right? yeah, over the years. So that was really good because I had a new crop of students every year, right? <laughs> The Terry talk. Yeah, the Terry talk. Oh, boy. But they (laughs) laughed. I brought humor in, and they they were getting great educations. They just needed that little oomph for that bedside manner. It means so much, especially in pediatrics. Mm -hmm. Early on, when he was diagnosed in October, then by December, and he was going to go in for radiation now for 18 days or 21 days of radiation, and we can do blood draws at home. So I finally put the gauntlet down to his, his nurse practitioner. I said, listen, can you teach me how to draw his blood and everything else in the tubes? And just, I, I will, I will find a lab near my house. We will, they will fax you. At that time it was faxing the results. Then we can get the information and we go, we plan accordingly. And she said, absolutely. And that was my first foray into advocating for my son. Now it exponentially went up as the years went by and his case became much more difficult. But that first thing, so when, I, when we finally got through all these relapses and when he went to Duke for his transplant, I was able to draw his labs. They trusted me. The doctors, you have to establish some type of trust with the parents. Not every parent can do it. It's hard to access the labs and you're pushing and changing the dress and everything else. Most of that was led up to the nurses if that's how a parent parent or family wants it. But mm-hmm. I said, Oh, no, no, that's not going to work in my schedule, in my world. So mm-hmm. I, I took matters into my own hands. And I became a nurse uh, on the job training, a doctor too, sometimes, because I had to make decisions that even a doctors did not agree with. But they listened to me. People say, what's the sign of a good doctor that listens to a loved one, a caregiver, a parent, those doctors, they know that that person knows their people intimately. When Ryan's eyes were rolling in the back of his head, well, that never happened before. They knew that was not a good sign. They went and they took him to the PICU. When Ryan had his transplant, his stomach was elongated because his spleen and liver were so distended and so swollen from everything that he went through. And one physician kept suggesting to remove the spleen. That's a whole nother ball game when you remove a spleen. So I read up as much as I can. I said, we're just going to sit and wait. I'm going to sit and wait on this. You're going to sit and wait with me on this? He said, Yes. I said, okay. So we didn't, sure enough, did that stomach go down? It was that doctor listening to me. That's important.
0: I understand you took copious notes. There were times when the residents or the doctors were asking to refer to your notes as much as his actual medical chart.
1: Yes, because, yes, there were, there were some mistakes because I write in the book and I would like to tell your listeners that your chart's always available to you no matter if it's your child or yourself or a loved one. So I would just stay on the nurse's station. I would just read over the notes every day. And if there was a discrepancy, I would call the charge nurse or the head of nursing, and I'd say, hey, I need you to check this over. I need you to talk to the resident, whoever wrote this out. This is not what my notes say. And then I got to the point where, okay, there's a discrepancy. Check their notes. They're writing everything down. It was noted around the hospital that we were very on top of everything, but we only had the one patient. And that's what I have to understand. But when the attending physician is coming to, and asking to see your notes, you must be doing something right.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Amazing. Again, one patient, one patient, one family, just that we couldn't control anything that was going on in his body, but we certainly can control those notes, those copious notes, those spreadsheets. We can control that. My husband was really good. He's, he can do his spreadsheet in his sleep And he was so good in setting all that up for us to just plug in the numbers and we were able to see. And when when we flipped over our notebooks and showed the doctors, their drawers were on the floor. What
0: does living a courageous life mean to you?
1: Living a courageous life for me is showing up for my son and showing up for my daughter time and time again. No matter if the chips were down, I was showing up for them. I was also present in their moments, in their toughest moments, their happiest moments, giving them that grace for that. Also, I think this is a huge one for courageousness, is establishing trust. My son trusted me implicitly. My daughter trusted me implicitly. We never sugarcoated anything, Linda. We told them straight up what was happening. And I think that has enabled them to become the adults they are today. My daughter doing you know, very well. My son doing very well in their respective fields. I think establishing that trust and being courageous is being with the doctors also, the nurses. We were able to establish trust with them too. But We were able to do the things. We were able to go home. Maybe they didn't want us to send us home, but they know the minute that he turns a corner, we're going to be calling and we're going to be coming in. And the doctor's... That's like their children, too. And the days are tenuous sometimes. It's so fragile. These kids need those hospitalizations, but families want to do things and they want to go places. But Ryan's cancer and all of that, all the doings with that came first. And then, you know, unfortunately, Olivia, she was, I don't want to say pushed to the side. She was front and center, but the sick kid's going to trump the healthy kid time and time again. And she knew that. As a youngster, of course, I'm sure she didn't care for that. But as she got older, she did. Also, I would say courage implies uh, a firmness in mind to face adversity time and time again and keep showing up. That's important too. And to use humor too, being courageous to do that and use that laughter with some doctors. I would tell them, hey, Dr. So-and-so, go home, Be, hope, do homework with your son. What is he in geometry right now? We're, we're good. We'll call you if we need you because I know they're there for Ryan. And they would really appreciate that. Knowing where I can go and knowing where I needed a back, like, hey, I don't know, so I'm going to expect the experts to tell me, but being courageous to say, I got this too, to help them, help my child. It was all mm-hmm. about that. And again, coming back to that team approach, I think that was our best bet, was using that team approach all those years, being a team. And that team grew over time as well as your oh, you
0: community bet. began to understand what was happening in your household and you were able to draw in much broader forces these were neighbors these were random community members that suddenly showed up with ways of helping that were just extraordinary and of course there's that formal volunteer community of charities that stepped forward and were able to help but literally random strangers who were coming and saying, I, I'm going to sign up to become a bone marrow donor. I mean, right. really people understood and became a part of the, the Tom off team.
1: I agree. And I feel the community was huge. And when you said the unknowns of community, there were people who you thought were going to show up and didn't, and people who you never thought would show up did. So we had the whole gamut and under the whole umbrella and I would say there was 2,000 people who were part of our army, our community, in different ways, in minute ways and bigger ways. Even just a prayer or sending a note, that's all part of that whole process. That's all part of that team of getting him where he needed to be mentally, physically, spiritually. I, I try to keep up with thank you cards and everything else. It just got lost in the shuffle. I mean, I'm barely getting home to wash my clothes or to sleep in my own bed every once in a while. So, you know, I I, I say... I, big apology in the book, like, thank you for everything, because I couldn't get to some people sometimes, you know, just too Mm -hmm. much, too hard. Things were coming fast and furious with everything. I really appreciate everything that everybody did. And even cutting our grass, you know, people say, what can I do? Make chocolate chip cookies, brownies for the nurses and doctors, the family, cut the grass, mow it, mow it down. You don't have to ask permission for that, (laughs) you know. Yeah, grab the grab
0: the lawnmower and go
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and then you know what in a week or two come back and do it again <laughs> because I'm, I guarantee true. it's not going to get done
0: <laughs> what impact do you want to have on the world what's your legacy
1: wow I think the power of connection and community would be my legacy because I think I was the fulcrum I was the head of the household I was where everything pointed out for me And that power of connection and community of the people I needed to have in my world at that moment or that time. And then keep in contact for a lot of them. I think that'll be my legacy. Also, I did everything I could for my kids. I got an account in this book that they'll forever have. They can look back to it. I was able to help. Put together their messy lives that they never asked for. I think that's a great legacy for anyone to say it for their children. And hopefully, maybe my grandchildren or great grandchildren, they'll always be able to look back at that. And maybe 50 years from now, when there's not chemotherapy and bone marrow transplant and there's target therapy and they go in and they just zap out, like, then maybe they'll re- be reading this, I'm like, oh my gosh, look what they had to go through. Plus, I will say my quilting, and if you preserve them well enough, the quilts can last a long time. And I have probably about 40 or 50 in the house that my kids will inherit and, and you know, pa- hopefully pass down. And I will probably give out more to family and friends too as years go by because you only need so many.
0: And you began to give quilts to the the families and the young children who were being diagnosed with cancer, the others that were in the hospital at the same time as Ryan and, and that you got to
1: know. Yes. That was later on when we went to Duke and then they were giving out the quilts to the kids. I just said, I'm bringing that back to my guilt. And we did that. And we started at that point, at like 2004, 2005 is when we started to really step it up and We give now to uh, some regional hospitals around here, and we would like to do more, but right now we can't because the hospital, you know, everything's kind of shut down in that respect. Right, right. But over the years, it's been great. And I even told the social workers at the hospital or the art therapists, because they also work with not only the cancer kids, but the other kids. And I said, hey, listen, if any family's really going through a hard time or siblings going through a hard time, please just go into the pantry, but they used to keep them in and just give them a quilt. Some of the hospitals they do small bowel transplants and heart and lung, you know, for, even for little kids they get those kids are hop- hospitalized for many months at a time, if not years. I said, give them, give them quilts, give the whole family one. I don't care.
0: That quilt. What does that symbolize for you?
1: The quilt symbolizes love through every stitch because even my other quilt guild members they'll tell me that when they're making a quilt for a child, there's a lot of thoughts and prayer going into that, and they feel very comforted. During those times, I only gave out to one. And it was very powerful for me to walk in there and hand that family a quilt. Mm. And I've gotten notes back over the years that a child have passed away. And guess what they did? They put that quilt over the ca- casket. Mm. Those quilts that were made by my guild. That's how powerful and how important those things were for that child and that family. Talk about a powerful moment and getting that feedback back. Not a lot. You only need one. So that's really, really powerful. So that legacy is another one. And then that family has that quilt. And we usually put something on the label that says by who it's made, what year, and that prayers and are in every stitch. So that child's got to have that on their bed with them and make it pretty. The room, you know, it was nice. I mean, I had the, when I would be at the hospital, I was sewing and quilting. And we didn't really have anything on Ryan's bed. Maybe I had a topper or something. I would fold it because... All the IVs and everything—it it gets really messy, and you're changing the sheets out quite a bit. But not mine. My bed—I got my air mattress on the floor, and of course, I always had a quilt or two on the bed. And there were people who would be walking by a room, and they would do that double take—they would step back for a second, look in, and they keep walking because they saw the at the corner of their eye. It wasn't the ugly blue blankets or the white blankets that are typically in a hospital. I had bright, shiny—you know—quilts with very bright colors, and it really—it's those quilts kept. My personality bright and sunny, let's put it that way.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And I was going to always look for the sunny side. No matter how bad the day was, I was going to look for that silver lining, that sunny side of life. There had to be something every single day. Quilting a beautiful quilt or working on a quilt was my way of doing that. And my son, if my mommy's machine is humming along, then things must be fine with me.
0: And you brought your sewing machine to the hospital.
1: Yes, I did. I had a little featherweight. I'd bring my iron. The iron was the worst thing because the iron would blow out the fuses. And then I had to get Levoy, my <laughs> facilities manager, to go up and fix my fuses. And oh, I, I, yeah, it was just, it was my home. So mm-hmm. I sew at home. So I brought my sewing to my home.
0: Yeah. Where did your positivity come from? Is there, is there a moment in your life where you learned that resilience that helped you draw upon that when this all began?
1: I don't know, I think my running over the years and not even winning so much, just being active and being a part of something. And good friendships, knowing people have my back. I have theirs too, but they have mine. Mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful to have really solid friendships. And I'm not even talking about my husband our friendship. I'm talking about other men I'm friends with that mm-hmm. are platonic friendships that I've had for since the second grade, some of them. And then other women over your my college friends, my high school friends, you know, strong bonds. I think that catapulted me and helped me be resilient because I knew these people were thinking of me. Somebody even just wrote me a note. I'm thinking of you. That made my day, if not my week, if my month, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of you. That's all I needed. Mm -hmm. But I think it was deep down in my soul. I think it was just so internal that I'm just going to keep thinking positively until, until it's not. But even when it's not, Okay, what can I find that's good? Even a bag of peas can be, you can think, if you can't think of anything else in the world, think of a bag of frozen peas. You can use them as a headache thing. You put them on your head. You can use them to fill a cooler if you don't have ice. You can put a bag of peas in there. You can actually eat them. It just comes down to that. I mean, just simple things in life. And I like to focus in on some of those simpler things in life. A beautiful sunset that charges me up more than anything hearing the birds outside i love hearing the birds just those simple things in life of watching a flower bloom going back to the nature and hiking in nature and naturing, being in nature i mean that that's another one that i think it gives me that resilience because i appreciate that maybe more maybe less i don't know the next guy next gal but it helps me hmm. definitely helps me
0: yeah What would you do on your last day?
1: Who? I hope there's laughter. (laughs) I think being around loved ones and saying I love you to your loved ones would be very powerful and poignant. And I don't want to have regrets. So I'm living, like I said, at the very beginning of this, to live each day the fullest you can. Even if you have a major migraine, there's something to be said that you're still above ground. And so I do not want to say, I regretted this, I regretted that. I don't want to have that. Mm -hmm. It's like, let's talk about the happier things in life, the happy places in life. That would be a good send-off, I think, for me to be like that.
0: If you had the opportunity to have a five-minute conversation with someone living or or dead, who would that be? (laughs) That's
1: a great question. Oh. I'm going to say probably my parents right now, only because there are some things that I would have liked to ask them that I did not ask them because I'm older now, I'm more wise, right? So we think that I didn't probably ask them because I think we always think our parents are going to live forever. What, what, you know, what made them tick? What I do celebrating other stories on my blog a lot and I mm-hmm. ask people what makes them tick and I I didn't have the chance to ask them do that so i think my parents i would have to say that the good bad and the ugly no matter what it was Mm -hmm. and i've learned a lot from all the writing that i've been doing over the past few years and blogging yes but being more mindful of what we're doing Mm -hmm. what i'm doing now Mm -hmm. and actually publishing self-publishing this book has just changed my whole my whole world really in my thinking and if I could only have them back, and my mother had suffered from Alzheimer's and then she died last summer, but I couldn't talk mm-hmm. to her about anything in the last 10 or 15 years. So that would have been so far back that I was not where I am today in this position. Yeah. So yes, that would be a great, if I could have those two back to say, hey, let me talk about this with you. Let me talk about that with you. What we have done with this? And I think that would be really, that would be very important to me. Is there anything yeah. else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Only that I think that you're awesome and I, I love your voice and I think you're made perfect for this, for your podcasting and you know, whatever else you're doing has been awesome too. But I really want to say a sincere thank you to you and your listeners and let me share a little bit of slice of my life. But I'm going to go out and, you know, with grace and laughter and make fun in our lives and enjoy every day, the sunshine, the sunset, even the rain, which I call liquid sunshine. So there you go. And good music. Oh, let's go and and let's throw in some good music and some good food. You can't beat that. That sounds great. Appreciate everything. Yeah. Thank you.
0: I have to ask you to tell the story that you shared with me the first time we spoke. I think it speaks so beautifully to that choice of empathy in a moment where you could have chosen quite a different tack and and maybe most people would have.
1: I was reffing a U15 finals match. The game started at 9am precisely. I blew my whistle. I had my team of assistant referees. They were great. Girls were out running beautifully, passing like champs. And there was one coach from the Maryland team that was screaming his head off every time I blew the whistle And he was just being very belligerent to me, to his players, the opponents. I just, you know, so I look at my watch first two minutes, four minutes, six minutes. He's not shutting up. And I see the girls, their play has changed now, both teams. The play has changed. And I'm like, I have to arrest this. So I thought to myself, if he doesn't stop by eight minutes, I'm going to blow my whistle. Sure enough, eight minutes, he's still squawking like he was the whole time. And I stopped the game. I ceremoniously walked over to him. I sauntered over on the field. So I told the girl to hold the ball, I'll come back to her, and I just walked away. Then I gave him the hand signal to come back on the field with me because I didn't want to talk in front of the rest of the bench players, and I just started to whisper to him. I brought the pressure of his yelling down to nil, and his his offensive behavior needed to be arrested. I told him straight up, somebody's watching, somebody's taping this game, and he has to realize what's going on here. And his body language looked defeated. His eyes were cast down. Tears were brimming along his eyes. And as I continued whispering to him, he was, I think, coming up with a rebuttal. Because he did say, after I gave him a chance, like a few seconds, he said, I'm a, he's a D.C. attorney. He does cases in front of the Supreme Court. And he was, a little, he was a little taken aback that I called him out on his behavior. But I said, I'm the judge, meaning the referee in the courtroom of the green field that he was standing on. It was my duty to protect the players, even the verbal assaults coming at them at all costs. And he couldn't argue that. So I have refed over 1,200 games, and, and this one stands out as the most for a coach's behavior. But I do not remember what happened to the outcome of that game or what team hoisted that trophy. But I'll always remember his transformation with his coaching style in less than an hour during that hotly contested championship match. He found himself. And he apologized profusely at halftime and at the end of the game, how much, how badly his behavior was affecting him and his players. He never even knew it. I felt like a good part of me was able to help him because I brought that pressure down and it allowed him to continue to coach. And my AR has never heard a peep out of him the rest of the game. So that was really, that was a really powerful moment for me. And him, I think he'll still, yeah. I don't know his name. I'm sure his daughter is, gosh, 25 now, 24 now, you know, that played on that team. And he was not like he was not a good coach. He was a very good coach. He just got so caught up in that game. But you know, there's a limit to that. And I think I brought him within the limits. And I, I feel good about that. that's what it's all about, right? All of life is, isn't it? Game management, life management. Hmm. Thank you for letting me share that. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, you know,
0: you could have given him a red card, you could have yes. sent him off the field, you could have done all those th- things, you were in your right to, to do so as the ref. I mean, mm-hmm. it, there was a moment of being right, and a moment of being compassionate. And you, you yep. chose the, the harder path in some respects, potentially, because maybe he wouldn't have responded to your desire to bring the temperature down and, and have a conversation. But uh, you reached something in him. And I thought that was impressive.
1: Yeah. I think he did think I was p- going to pull out a card and there was, I could hear a pin drop on that field. Right. Oh, for sure. That's how everybody sh- was quiet going. Oh, what's she going to do? They were holding their breath and he was too, but I never put my hand or I was going to pull out a card. I never did. But the talking to was a good thing. And it was, it was very short and sweet and he got the message. He was a smart guy. Yeah. Thank you. That was good. Yeah, other coaches not so much, but
0: uh, yeah, (laughs) but but him, it worked. One thing we didn't really touch on was PTSD, which obviously your family are are poster children for PTSD, but you have very much focused in your book on post traumatic growth.
1: It's a subject in all of its own, and I feel like I do small things with great love. I'm not going to start a foundation or anything. I Don't mind donating to them and all that. We try to do that with our people that we know that have done that. But I think my book and um, doing my quilting and donating quilts to other cancer kids, because I've gone to Puerto Rico and I donated to the Children's Cancer ward there. And I've been to Ethiopia and I donated quilts to the Mother Teresa home with my son's doctor. I have friends in this in this genre of you know parents of child cancer, they, they can't do it, but people like me maybe that can write a book and do want to talk about it and share that experience, then there's people out there like me that are doing that too. Mm-hmm. People who have set up foundations. There's most, most foundations are, are started with children who have passed away. Post-traumatic growth is those kind of type of things. When we did our cancer groups back at the hospital back in the day, we laughed we never laughed harder than anybody. They were like, "What is going on?" In there? This is, they see you know pediatric cancer, and they see all this laughter and you know music coming out of the, <laughs> out of the office, because we did not let that change who we were as people. Yes, we had a challenge in our life, but we're going to do it with humble grace. It won't define you. No, not going to define me. Hey, you know, one step at a time, one day at a time. But I love your questions. They're excellent.
0: Oh, thank you. You really get us thinking. Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you, Terry and Ryan, Olivia and Bill for sharing your incredible story and for everything you're accomplishing through your team approach and embracing the mindset of post-traumatic growth. September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And Terry is posting daily positive messages for families, loved ones, and anyone who needs a boost. I will share her various social media links in the show notes. Go Team Tomoff, and good health to all of you. You've more than earned it. Thank you for listening. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast. And if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this episode, please share it leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts i really appreciate you listening and providing this feedback do you know someone whose story i should share i'd love to hear from you please feel free to reach out to me via my website thearena-podcast.com or any of my social media channels this will be my last episode for this season while i take a break to work on season four i'm excited to share my lineup of guests with you in the coming weeks It's another diverse and inspiring group of people. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in The Arena.